several weeks. I start trial tomorrow in Lubbock, Texas. And yeah, growing up, I thought happiness was Lubbock, Texas in my rearview mirror. But now happiness is Lubbock, Texas getting nearer and dearer. And uh, um, so uh, uh, it means that I went ahead and tried to do a lot of the work for the next couple of weeks ahead of time, figuring I may not have as much time this week. So if you're in Lubbock um, and you get called to jury duty, when they ask if you know me, just raise your hand this much. Okay? No. Um, When I was growing up, uh, this year uh, we're coming up on the eighth anniversary in January, uh, February actually, first, of my father's death. And while we've not had dad for almost eight years in a physical way, we always as kids will have dad with us because dad had certain things about him that, that are still with us today. Some of them were little sayings that he would use, and he'd use the same saying over and over. Uh, I can remember as a kid, any time we fell, uh, one time in particular, I had... Uh, fallen off of my bicycle, and I'd come running in, and I'd hit the sidewalk, and uh, uh, I came in, and I'm in tears, and I'm not really hurt. Dad measures me up and down. He realizes I'm not hurt. I'm more panicked over the idea that I fell, and I think my head may have hit the sidewalk. I'm not sure, but I think my head may have hit the sidewalk. And I'm thinking, I was a hypochondriac at an early age. I didn't wait. I'm thinking I've probably sustained permanent brain damage. And uh, Dad's response to calm me down was very typical of what we would hear through the ages. It was, did you break the sidewalk? And, and I didn't know what he meant the first time he used it. And he said, well, Mark, you are rather hard-headed. Um, we grew up in a house where some of these lines are still used. In fact, uh, in my house growing up, you learned to never say, I'm going to go take a bath or I'm going to go take a shower. Because if you did, within hearing range of my dad, my dad's response would always be to shout out, thank you. Um, I can remember as a kid uh, getting between my dad and gun smoke on the TV. And my dad says to me, Mark, that's not what the TV looked like that had gun smoke. Dad says to me, Mark, have you been drinking muddy water? I said, no, why? He said, I'm having trouble seeing through you. And for the rest of my life, if someone's in front of dad and the TV, it was, you've been drinking muddy water. That was just one of his sayings. He had others. Uh, uh, if you spilled milk at the dinner table, he never said, uh, there's no use crying over spilled milk. What dad would always say, any mistake you made like that, he would always say something like, if that's the worst thing that happens, you're going to have a great day. And uh, that, that saying has taken on a life. When my son read this lesson uh, that I had emailed it to him on, on Friday night, he emailed me Saturday morning and said, I never knew that was Daddy Bill who started that. And I don't know if it was my dad who started it, but uh, uh, it certainly came from him for our family, and it's one that keeps going. There was more if my dad met you and he liked you. He would tell you after you were leaving, you're a gentleman and a scholar. And if he felt close enough to you that you wouldn't take it as arrogance, he would add under his breath, and there aren't many of us left. Um <laughs> And that was an ultimate compliment from my dad. My dad had a degree from North Texas State University in shop. 
industrial arts. He was qualified to be a shop teacher. But what my dad did with his degree is he went into the railroad and he worked as a salesman for the railroad for his life. And uh, uh, my dad's education was very narrow, but his interest in the world was extremely broad. He could work a crossword puzzle out of the New York Times in 10 minutes. He knew something you did not want to play dad in Scrabble. You did not want, uh, uh, yeah, I'll take him on, she said. Uh, you did not, I mean, dad had a broad base of knowledge. Dad was what you might call a polymath. John Monson had asked me one time uh, uh, what I thought about being a polymath, and I didn't know enough to say, oh, I think that'd be a really cool thing. I had to look it up, which is a pity because I do have a degree in Greek and Hebrew, but it actually comes from polymathes, the Greek word that uh, uh, means basically one who has learned much. But where I grew up, we didn't call them polymaths. We called them Renaissance men. Perhaps you've heard that phrase, a Renaissance man. There are, you know, it's used to, in history to people who just know a whole lot about a lot of different things. It's used of Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, it's used of Copernicus. It's used of Galileo. It's used of Dr. Bob Leone. It's used of so many... Uh, he's seated right down here if you want to talk to him about that hat. Um, it's used of people who have such a broad range of knowledge that comes into play... And it's really an incredible concept because we live in an age of specialization. We live in an age where uh, Uta Monson is here. She's a pediatrician. Now, she's a specialist at taking care of children's health needs. And, and there's a specialization as a lawyer. If you want me to write a will for you, I mean, I could try, but it'd probably be malpractice. The only hope I'd have is you'd be dead and couldn't sue me when you found out. I don't know how to do that. That's like asking Uta to do brain surgery. She could probably make her way around the brain, but she's not going to be real comfortable. And if your life's on the line, go find a brain surgeon, not a pediatrician. We live in a day of specialization. And that's really useful because it allows us to really get a close-in vision of something. And we can really become a specialist. And we can know it really well. The problem is that can also become tunnel vision. And we lose track of so many other different pieces of the puzzle when we specialize so narrowly that we lose, lose uh, the peripheral. We lose interactions. We lose how one thing connects to another. We lose that ability to get out of our own neural network, our own thought processes, and, and, and start making new connections with areas that maybe are outside our study. And it's interesting, if you ask me, Mark, why did you go to school? Why did you bother getting a Hebrew and Greek degree? You didn't need that to be a lawyer. I would tell you it came out of my desire to understand the Bible better. See, if you had come to me as a young man and said, hey, there's a Greek book called Matthew in the New Testament. I would have told you, I want to learn that. I started learning my Greek before I got out of high school because it was something I wanted to learn. And so it was something where, where I, because I wanted to understand Matthew for what Matthew had to say. 
I went to a marvelous church with a marvelous preacher. We go to a marvelous church with a marvelous preacher. If you missed David's sermon this morning, like all of them on the seven letters to the Revelation churches, they were phenomenal because he does his homework. And he, he listens for what God has to say and he applies it. I grew up in a church like that with a preacher who would say, here's a Greek word. But I wanted to know what the Greek word was. I wanted to be able to check it. I wanted to be able to make those connections. So I just thought if it's Matthew, and Matthew is in the Greek New Testament, note to self, I need to learn Greek. Then I'll know Matthew. And that's the Greek New Testament. So, you want to know Matthew? Note to self. I better learn the New Testament. Because it's part of it. And for a while I operated with this idea that as long as I learn Greek and as long as I learn the New Testament, I'm going to be fine. The problem is, that's too narrow. Because Jesus really did grow up in a place called Nazareth. It's a physical location on this dirt clod in outer space we call Earth. And there is a place uh, 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 with GPS coordinates today that was Nazareth where the Son of God grew up and walked. And if I really want to understand those stories, I need to understand a little bit about where he was. You know, so much of his ministry took place around the Sea of Galilee. That's a real place. It's got water in it. It's got communities that dot the shoreline. It's got inflow. It's got outflow. It's got fish. It's got storms. And I need to not just know... Nazareth and Jerusalem or Bethlehem and the, the, the towns. I need to understand the geography. But there's more to it than that. Jesus didn't just grow up in a physical place. He grew up in a culture as well. He grew up in a tradition that had deep roots of faith. He grew up as a Jew. I mean, son of God. You get to pick which race you want to be born into, right? I mean, if you're going to bother coming to earth, don't you get to say, I think I'm coming there? I can remember Rebecca. We had had a chance to have a family vacation in Italy. And Rebecca was a young girl, and we were talking. Uh, she had overheard a conversation about where's your favorite place. And she said, my favorite place is Italy. And I asked her, she was in like, she was five or six. I said, honey, why do you like Italy so much? She said, Dad, I don't know if you remember or not, but almost all the restaurants have Italian food. <laughs> and she had not linked in her mind, vocabulary, Italy is what Italian food is. For her, it was totally different. She said, they got spaghetti, they got pizza, they got Italian food everywhere in Italy. And uh, that's true. But Jesus chose to be born a Jew. He was born into a culture and into a faith that God had, had already prepared, that God had been working in and through for over 1,500 years. And so Jesus comes in. Now, here's the problem. He's interacting. It, this, is, this is what's going on in his world. This is where he's walking. So if I want to know Matthew, 
Matthew may be part of the Greek New Testament, but what I figured out is i got to learn the Greek Old Testament too. The Septuagint that we've talked about. Not just the Greek Old Testament, I better learn the Hebrew Old Testament. And you just start learning those and then you find out that that's not going to do it either. Because after the Jews get carted off into captivity and they go off into Babylon and they, they become more Aramaized, Aramaicized, whatever the word might be, they become more attuned to the Aramaic dialect of the day, all of a sudden Hebrew starts dying out a bit as a language and, and at that point in time they start translating their scriptures into Aramaic. And some of them are more loosely paraphrased than others, but these are the Targumim. These are the, 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 the Aramaic Targum that, that, that is a paraphrase. So you got, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, I've got to learn the Peshitta because some of this stuff gets put into Syriac, and that's going to help us figure that out too. And at that point in time, I just decide, ah, I'll go to law school. And I'll leave this to people like Emmanuel Tove and Alan Millard and all these other guys that are sitting over here that actually can read all that stuff. I'll know just enough to be dangerous and to let by on Sunday morning. Because it's no longer enough just to be a specialist. If you really want to understand these scriptures, you need to have some degree of access, at least, to knowledge beyond simply the Greek New Testament. Now, does this mean, oh, mercy, there's no point in any of us studying? Heavens, no. That's the whole point. There's tons of reasons to study. You might be in church and have been here for 120 years. But I promise you, there's more to it than you know right now. And until the day you die, just make a resolution. I'm going to continue to learn what are the riches in Scripture. There are lots of ways to do it. You don't have to go back and learn all those languages. Get a couple of translations and start digging around for the difference. Come to this class or find another class where the Bible's being studied and commit to. I'm going to try and study these things and I'm going to try and learn these things because there's a wonderful world that will unfold and that's our commitment in this class to trying to constantly unfold that world. My commitment to you as a teacher I commit to you as a teacher that I will try very hard every Sunday to offer anyone who's in here something they didn't already know. And that's not because I'm that smart. It's because there's that much material there. It's just a matter of gleaning and, and learning. And there's discernment and there's work and it's not always easy. But it's, it's, it's an incredible opportunity. So that's my commitment to you. Today we're going to start out looking at Matthew, which we did in one big oversweep two weeks ago. Today we're going to start tearing it apart bit by bit. This morning, session one on the Jewishness of Matthew's gospel. Now you'll recall, I talked about the fact that we have four gospels. It's like Rembrandt doing four self-portraits. They're of the same fella, same skin, same eyes, ears, nose, all the rest. But they're four different perspectives trying to bring out aspects of Rembrandt's character. These are four different Gospels that are all dealing with Jesus, all dealing with his history as God and man on earth, but each one presenting it as a different portrait. None of these are written to be our, our historical fact by fact by fact of how it unfolded. 
closest we're going to come to that's probably Luke. But, but certainly we looked at Mark's gospel as one that was written to communicate to the Latin world, especially perhaps, but certainly the Gentile world at least. In contrast to that, Matthew's gospel is a very Jewish gospel. And it's written to be understood best and to minister to either those who are Jewish or those who at least are close enough to the Jewish faith and practice at the time of Christ to appreciate certain things within Matthew's gospel. Matthew had a different target audience than Mark. And we can see that clearly, how Matthew writes to a Jewish audience. If we look, for example, and compare Mark 7, 3, and 4 with Matthew 15. These are the same stories, but look at the difference in the way Mark tells it versus the way Matthew tells it. Here we have Mark. Okay, now, when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who'd come from Jerusalem. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. These are some of Jesus' disciples. Now look what Mark does. Mark adds a parenthetical. He puts a parenthesis in there. Because the, the Gentile audience that doesn't know Jewishness doesn't know Jewish practice, that's not going to mean anything to them in this story. So Mark will add, you see, the Pharisees and all the Jews, they don't eat unless they wash their hands. Look at that. They don't eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe. The washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And then he picks back up. He ends the parentheses and he says, and the Pharisees and the scribes ask Jesus, hey, how come your disciples don't walk according to the traditions of the elders? How come they're not washing their hands? You see how Mark feels it important to insert into the story an explanation of the Jewish tradition that's behind the story Mark's telling. You with me? Let's look at the same story the way Matthew tells it. Here we are in Matthew 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. They said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat. Jesus answered, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Takes one to know one. Look at yourself first, hotshot. Matthew doesn't feel the need to insert an explanation into the story because Matthew's writing his gospel with a target audience in mind that already understands these things. So for Matthew, it's very easy. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. Now, let's set that aside, and once we start understanding that, then we can look at Matthew and we can start picking up some nuggets And I won't cover all of them here. You've got a handout, and you can look at some of them in the handout. By the way, there are some great implications for those of you who have such an inclination where I've kind of given my own musings on some things that may be worthless in the footnotes. But one of them that I won't cover here, at least not today, 
is when Matthew wrote his gospel. Because I do believe that a lot of the things we're looking at bear directly on whether or not Matthew's gospel was written before or after the destruction of the temple. And, and the implications and some of my thoughts on that are in the footnotes, but I just throw that in as an aside. You can take a vacation from all of that and ignore the footnotes. Now, what I'd like to do instead is show you some other ways that we can better understand Matthew if we understand his audience and how they would have followed what he was saying. You can look, for example, at some of the word play that Matthew uses. It's very Hebrew. I've put up here two examples, Matthew 1.21 and 2.23. And 1.21 is one that we mentioned briefly two weeks ago, but I'd like to look at it now and, and make a little more sense of it, understanding that Matthew is writing to Jews. Matthew, uh, uh, let me put this passage we're looking at, 21, into context. Joseph has found out that Mary is pregnant. Joseph and Mary have not been together. Joseph decides he's going to divorce her quietly because he doesn't want to embarrass her. And in the process of this, an angel appears to Joseph and says, Don't. She's still pure. The child that's within her is born of God, the Holy Spirit. And so don't put her away. Be father to the child. Be mother, I mean, husband to the mother. And in the process says, she will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You will call his name Jesus because, for, because. There we go. Because he'll save his people from, what does naming him Jesus have to do with that? Well, if you look at Jesus in the Greek, Jesus, you're not going to get anything. It's not going to help you at all. Because really, the Greek name, Jesus, is a transliteration. It's basically putting into Greek letters a Hebrew name of either Joshua, Yeshua, or Yehoshua. So all that Matthew has done is write in Greek an event that happened most likely in Aramaic, which has the same implication as Hebrew, but the point is, you don't even get this unless you understand the Hebrew behind it. You do not get, she will conceive and you'll call his name Jesus because he'll save the people from their sins. The only way you're going to get that is if you know that the Hebrew name that Jesus comes from means he will save. So it makes sense if you know the Hebrew. Name him, he will save, because he will save. But if you don't know the Hebrew, you can get lost in this. And so it's just another example of the Hebrew wordplay. Matthew 2.23 is another one I wanted to show you. Now this one is a little bit more fun. Well, I don't mean the other one wasn't fun. This is a different kind of fun there. You never want to say something's not fun in Scripture, unless it's like, well, there, never mind. Um, here it is. Now, Herod, before Herod dies, Jesus is an infant, to put this into context. 
And as an infant, an angel of the Lord comes to a dream in Joseph, says, go to Egypt, take the child to Egypt, because people are trying to kill him. And Egypt is a place where the Israelites in their history would go and God would protect them from e- in Egypt. It was a place of protection for them sometimes. And then God would call them out of Egypt. Uh, you know, famine in the land, go down to Egypt. They calls them back out of Egypt into the promised land. So, so Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, is told to take him there. And here's what he's told. He said, stay in there. He stays in until it, the, the, those that wanted the death of Jesus were gone. And then he's called back out. He doesn't go where he was going. Instead, he goes and lives in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, there's a problem. You will not find in the Old Testament anywhere a messianic prophecy that says the Messiah is going to be called a Nazarene. It's not in there. And this has bothered scholars for a long time. It really starts bothering scholars first when they're the Greek church fathers who look through this in a Greek lens and have tunnel vision. And so you have old honeymouth Chrysostom, he was the honeymouth preacher. John Chrysostom, in the 4th century, I think, John Chrysostom writes up and says, Oh, it's apparent here, Matthew had access to some prophetic books that we don't have anymore. Because he's found a prophecy, he knew a prophecy that we don't know. This must be one of the long-lost books of prophecy. And other apostolic, uh, early church fathers, not apostolic, but early church fathers, Uh, uh, followed Chrysostom's thought and would echo it. Then you've got other scholars who say, eh, Matthew is just a little weak on his Old Testament. Eh, he made a mistake. Then you've got other scholars who say, well, maybe he's gone to some non-canonical source. Maybe he had something outside of the Bible. And he's taking it from... The Madam Cleo of his day. Well, all the problem with that is, is people are looking at this through the lens of, of a Greek focus. And they're not opening it up. If they open it up to see what Matthew's saying, there's a beautiful lesson to Jesus being a Nazarene in this sense that's tied to a prophetic, a messianic promise. Let's go back to the PowerPoint. Y'all, we're already there. Y'all are so fast. All right, here, let's put up the chalkboard for a moment and let's talk about this. Nazarene, take out the vowels because those are things we've tried to supply and we can follow the Hebrew language easier if we take those out in a situation like this. But... You take them out, and Nazarene, you can see it, N-Z-R-N. Now, most Hebrew words and most Semitic words have what are called three consonantal roots. It's a triconsonantal language. There, there are three consonants that form the root of the general term most of the time. And Nazarene, I'm not bright enough to know what it is, 
but I see a word play when it slaps me in the face. And there are a number of scholars who've written extensively on this, pointing out the word play with the Hebrew nazar. Nazar is the Hebrew that means an offshoot or a branch. It's the word used in Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 1, where Isaiah writes, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a Nazar from his roots shall bear fruit. An offshoot, a sprout from the roots. I don't know your familiarity with olive trees. We've got a number of them on our property. They're gorgeous trees. I love olive trees. But they're a pain in the neck. Do you know why? Olive trees are always producing these little nasty shoots from the roots. And you've got to clip them. You're constantly pruning them. You don't want them. They're not what's there. You've already got a good fruit-bearing tree with a good trunk. If the tree should die, maybe you let one of the offshoots grow into a tree. But mainly you get rid of those so that the, the root system will nourish the main tree. The offshoots are useless. Snip them. Use, uh, use them for something, but don't let them grow there. They're, 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 and that is a messianic promise. And that's the pun that's the word play that I would suggest Matthew's making. And Matthew's got this great ability to do it. Now, you, you might be thinking, well, that's sure odd. How's anybody going to catch it? The truth of the matter is, this was a common, to some degree, recognition of a Nazar being something that is an offshoot, but also something that's lowly and despised and, and of no merit and of no worth in the eyes of most people. Um, I gave you a footnote to this end. And in the footnote, I, uh, on page 6, footnote 8, the Dead Sea Scrolls have taken the motif of a Nazar's humble and unassuming reality as an offshoot and applied it to one who was mocked, forsaken, without refuge. This was a contemporary perspective, relatively. A way to recognize at that time, in that culture, this was a motif beyond just Matthew and the Gospels. You have a friendly neighborhood library where you can go access these things. And for at least another month or so, an incredible Hebrew scholar who's translated almost all of them, who hangs out his shingle there on a daily basis. But you can go there, and I've given you the references, and, and you learned if you were in our Hebrew class here, in our Old Testament class, I taught you the alphabet for a reason. You can go look at these references. You can pull them. You can, do we, can we put this on the, ah. Okay. You can pull it. And I'm not saying sit here and start reading this thing and, and oh, not sorry, there it is. I found it. Okay, I, I'm not saying you've got to do it that way. It's got English on this side. So you can cheat. You can see, hey, is Lanier being straight? Okay, let's go look that up. And you can look it up. And you can see about verse 6 where he's making a shoot grow. And this is not the library copy. I'm not marking in the library copy. Some of you are cringing, saying you're ruining your life. No, it's, this is okay. This is personal copy. 
But then you can go find verse 6 and say, just for grins, I want to see if they really use the word Natsar because there are other words that could be used. And you can read about it, and you can read about the Natsar in this, being someone who's a forsaken man, whose disease has increased to bitterness, an incurable pain which doesn't stop. And you can see the way this word is used. And that is who Jesus was. Jesus, Matthew will later say, is the one who said, come take my yoke upon you. Because it's light and easy, but Jesus himself, he recognizes, I'm a man of humility. Meek and lowly in heart. Paul points out Jesus being that way as an aspiration point for what Paul was trying to achieve in his own ministry. Jesus is, goes and is raised in Nazarene simply off a of word play that we would see in him the Natsar of Isaiah 11. He is the Natsarene. He is the one from Natsar. He is the offshoot that's not really worth anything, but came from the trunk, came from the main tree, came from the branch, and in fact becomes the tree that bears fruit. And that's what Matthew's saying here. So it's a delightful way to start looking at these things. It's delightful to see this word play. We go back, what else do we have? Well, all right, he uses word play. How about Matthew's use of the Old Testament? Matthew quotes or alludes to the Old Testament more than any gospel writer by far, which makes sense if he's writing it to a people of the Old Testament. To the Jews, the Old Testament was recognized as the, the words of God. These are the words of God that he looks to to bear witness and testimony to Jesus. And it's wonderful how he does it. Let's throw back up the chalkboard. Um, uh, we can divide it up. Uh, 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 there's a, a New Testament scholar who did a dissertation on this that I cite in there, uh, R.H. Gundry, who, who did a, an incredible dissertation. Uh, it's now been published in 1967 by Brill. It's really hard to read if you don't know your Greek and your Hebrew because it's just on every page. It's the kind of thing that I started reading it at night in bed. And I went to sleep like almost immediately. It was really helpful. And then I had to look at it the next day when I was awake where I could deliberately do it because I can't just read the Greek and Hebrew as easily as I can the English. And he kind of charts it all together. But he does a great job at breaking apart both those direct quotations where Matthew... We'll, we'll speak very directly about an Old Testament passage and those that are indirect or what he calls the elusive quotations where Matthew alludes to something or speaks in Old Testament language. Um, I'm running out of time. I've got a great story on this. I can't tell it. Um, but there are ten direct quotations that are easy to identify because Matthew each time says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. But then there are also these other quotations that aren't so direct. They're very indirect. And when you look at them, it's almost like Matthew's off. You look at the quotation or the elusive uh, reference that Matthew makes, and then you go to the actual reference in the Old Testament, and it's like, well, he didn't get it right. <gasps> There's a mistake in the Word of God. No. We read it differently than we should be reading it. 
See, Matthew existed in a time and a place. This wasn't a case of, and oh, you read the scholars. And you can identify quickly the scholars who haven't done their homework because they don't even consider as a possibility. The true Renaissance man answers to some of these questions. They just read it and say, well, you know, Matthew had a bad memory. He quoted it wrong, made a mistake. You know, accidents happen. And they don't realize that actually Matthew lived within a Jewish tradition and wrote within a Jewish tradition that allowed you to take Old Testament language and weave it and make changes to it to emphasize points. It's like italicizing something or, or, or putting it in big red bold letters. And sometimes they would weave it into their own sentence, in their own words, in their own thoughts. Sometimes they would alter it and make it say something very different. And it's a way of underscoring the point of the difference because the readers would have known the Hebrew Scriptures. Heavens, you can't have the hundreds of elusive uh, references Matthew has without knowing your Scriptures cold. We'll talk about whether Matthew the Levite actually wrote Matthew. But if so, I suspect before he became a tax collector, he studied for the Levitical priesthood because he sure seems to know his tribe's understanding of Scripture. That's another class. I want us to take five minutes and compare Matthew 121, a passage we've already looked at, with Psalm 130, verse 8, which is one of these elusive quotes where Matthew, in a sense, is echoing language that is to be found in the other passage. So Matthew 121, this is the passage we looked at before. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what we're going to emphasize. For he will save his people from their sins. Now this is an echo of the last part of Psalm 130, verse 8. Psalm 130, verse 8, which in context starts with verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there's steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Who is the he there? It is the Lord. yod heh vav will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Well, Matthew takes that and says that God, through the angel, is saying, you'll call his name Jesus, he will save, because Jesus, yod heh vav Yahweh, Jesus will save his people from their sins. Now, it says his people. It doesn't say Israel. Did Matthew mess up? I mean, you go back, the psalm doesn't say his people, it says Israel. Because Israel is God's people. But as Jesus came to show, God's people are from every race and every nation. And Jesus did not come simply to save the ethnic, historical offspring of Abraham. Jesus came to save from their sins all people. I think I've told this story before, but I've got to tell it again. 
I tried a series of cases, Bob and I, and, and I tried them, it's never a solo effort, a series of cases against um, a pharmaceutical company. We tried the very first case against this pharmaceutical company that arose out of these facts. We tried it here in Texas. We had a wonderful jury of God-fearing, church-going people. And I will readily admit that in my opening argument, in my closing argument, and in several examinations of witnesses, at times you would hear, within my questions, me using some language from Scripture. If a witness I thought wasn't telling the truth, I had no qualm saying, Sir, have you ever heard the expression, let your yes be yes and your no be no? Now, I have, I, and, and, and it's not something that I'm always deliberately doing. Sometimes it just comes out. You can learn Spanish. And the little bit of Spanish I know, I have to think about how to say. But some people learn it so well that they don't have to think about how to translate it into Spanish. It just can come out Spanish. That's my wife. I can't do that. But I come closer with Scripture. And that is my goal in life, is to know it so well, it just flows out in my vocabulary. So after we tried this case in Texas, and we just put a big whip on them. I mean, we hurt them bad. They told everybody in the media and in the world, well, that happened because you were in Texas. And uh, Preacher Boy had a preacher jury. So I, we, we decided, okay, we'll go up to New Jersey. Atlantic City, New Jersey. So we went to Atlantic City, New Jersey, and the, before the trial started, the other side filed with the judge a brief, a legal document, that said, do not let Mark Lanier do the following. It's about that thick. And among the things they did not want me to do was quote or reference the Bible. And they said, Judge, we've read the transcript from his earlier trial. You've got to be real careful with him because he does it without saying it's the Bible. <laughs> and it's like a secret handshake with members of the jury. <laughs> and they got this thing going when he does it. And, and they said, Judge, and we don't know the Bible good enough to catch him. So we want you to put an order on the record so that we can go back after the trial and do a Google search of all of his phrases to see if any of them come from the Bible. The judge said, I can't stop him from quoting the Bible. The other side said, sure you can. We have a case. Well, their case was garbage. It didn't apply at all. Their case said, I, I, it's a longer story than I have time for. It's absolutely hilarious, though, what their case said. And it was garbage, and it wasn't on point. And I said to the judge, uh, I, I said to the other side, I said, you are quite wrong. Which, by the way, is a quote from Mark, <laughs> where Jesus is correcting the scribes and the Pharisees. But aside from that, I said, Your Honor, I don't plan, I'm in Atlantic City. I don't plan on quoting the Bible intentionally. I'm... I've got some Donald Trump quotes I'm going to use, but I, I'm working with the audience here. Um, but, but, you know, Matthew's got that ability to weave in 
But sometimes he weaves it in on purpose wrong. And he's not the only one. This was typical in that time. You see it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You see it in other areas. I'll tell you this. We can take that off and you can see it with what Jesus did. Look at Jesus as the Son of Man. As the Son of Man, Matthew uses uh, writes of Jesus using that label more than any other New Testament writer by far. 28 times in Matthew. Where does this come from? Son of man, son of man. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. And I want to compare. And Jesus uses it properly over and over in reference to him about how he'll come before God in heaven into his throne. But there's a time where Jesus uses it in an exact opposite way to make his point. And that's done in Matthew 26. Let's look at this real quick. I know I'm running out of time, but this is really good. Here's the Daniel passage, though you've got it in your brain. Daniel 7. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man to the ancient of days. This is Jesus coming to the throne of God in heaven. There came one to the Ancient of Days, presented before the Ancient of Days. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion's an everlasting dominion. His is one which won't pass away. His kingdom's one that won't be destroyed. That's what happens when the Son of Man comes before God and is given the throne. Now Jesus gets called down in front of Caiaphas. He's been arrested And Caiaphas, the high priest, is coming at Jesus. And Caiaphas, the high priest, comes to Jesus in Matthew 26. And Matthew, the high priest, says, uh, high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? These men, they're testifying against you. Jesus remained silent. The high priest says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah. Tell us if you're the Son of God. And look what Jesus says in verse 64. You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He takes the passage from Daniel where Daniel says, the son, I saw in a vision and the Son of Man was coming to the Ancient of Days and was given the kingdom and the power and the glory. And Jesus says, you're going to see the Son of Man coming down, already enthroned, already as king, and he will come down on those clouds in judgment. Now the high priest doesn't say, uh, excuse me Jesus, you've misquoted Daniel 7. The high priest knew exactly what Jesus meant because that's precise way of thinking and teaching. The high priest tears his robe and says he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? We've heard it here. He's claiming to be God. That's the way Scripture could be used then. And we can see insight into it. It's one reason it was so important in the Old Testament that a prophet be recognized properly as a prophet and that a false prophet be distinguished as such. It's one reason it's so important in the New Testament for you to test the spirits and try and discern because it's so easy to take Scripture and twist it and use it wrong as opposed to using it right. That was the temptation's from, from Jesus in the wilderness with Satan. He, Satan's using Scripture. 
you got to use it right. So um, I've gone on a little bit too long. Let's, uh, let's close. Here are your points for home. Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph got to give him a name. He already had the name. He was Emmanuel. He was God with us. He was the son of David. He was the son of Abraham, the son of promise. He was the son of God. He was the son of man. He has countless names. But each one of us get to decide what name we will give him. Next point for home. He lived in Nazareth that he would be called a Nazarene. Nazarene. I want to be, I want, I want to be one. It's hard to say. I really want to be humble because I'll be so proud of it. So I don't know where the wrinkles of that is, but I will tell you this. That I really, really, really hope to be a person who doesn't get his accolades from the world. I don't want to live to make people in the world think something really special. And God forgive me when I do. Because I...